For me, for a number of reasons, I think anthropology is a great way, has been a good way for me to think about a, a kind of a practice of living, of engaging with people, listening to people, expanding who one considers to be um, knowledgeable. And that has been absolutely crucial to my own thinking about Palestine and what liberation could mean. This is Voice of Insaniyat. I'm your host, Anna Tishkov, and today we are in conversation with Amal Bishara, professor of anthropology at Tufts University. Amal, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Anna. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Grateful for the chance to share and talk about my work in progress. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't wait to delve in. So the first question I want to ask you, for the audience, could you speak a bit about the book project that you're currently working on? Yes, I'm working on a project about what impedes Palestinians um, in Israel, 1948 Palestinians, from speaking to and with Palestinians in the West Bank, in the occupied territories. So it's it's a story about sort of what inhibits them from speaking to each other and as a collective. Um, and I'm especially looking at people who are activists, people who are, um, you know, engaged with these questions around Palestinian liberation and what it might mean today. Um, and I should say that, you know, in looking at these two groups, I'm looking at two parts of a much larger picture of Palestinian fragmentation and um, that includes Palestinians everywhere. Um, and there are groups that I'm sort of um, conspicuously leaving out um, in the ethnography but which I'm, you know, who I'm certainly concerned with and thinking about um, in some ways, most glaringly, I'm not writing about Palestinians in Gaza who are also living under, you know, Israeli rule um, in a different way. Uh, But I did not have, you know, I'm not able to go to Gaza. Um, And I think that also sort of, it would have been very complicated to do um, ethnography in those three places, even if I was an individual who was lucky enough to have, you know, physical access to those three places, right? So I try to write about Palestinians in Gaza. Um, I write about the March of Return, um, you know, using other kinds of sources than ethnographic ones. Um, And I, I also write about, you know, the protests of Palestinians in Israel and Palestinians in the West Bank in solidarity with Palestinians in Gaza during the 2014 war. So again, while I, I'm not able to go to Gaza conceptually, you know, I'm thinking about what, what fragmentation means when we think about it as, you know, including the siege on Gaza. So given these two communities that you've been looking at and working with, could you perhaps ground us, and especially for those who have no background on Palestine, could you explain who the Palestinian citizens of Israel are, or the 48 Palestinians? And could you define perhaps the terms 48 and 67, and how you use these terms throughout your work? Yes, that's a really wonderful place to really dig in. Um, so many Palestinians use the terms um, 
48 Palestinians and 67 Palestinians to talk about two different Palestinian groups. It's really interesting because it just demonstrates how history is formative of these identities. So um, in 1948, about 800,000 Palestinians were displaced from their homes um, with the establishment of the state of Israel. And many of those people became refugees in Lebanon and Syria and in Jordan. And some of them went to the West Bank and to Gaza. Um, And then about um, 150,000 or a little bit more, don't quote me on the number, stayed inside what became Israel and became citizens. Um, And they are now one fifth of the population of um, Israel. In the West Bank, Palestinians are about 80% of the population, with the other 20% being Israeli settlers. And a, a significant proportion of those Palestinians in the West Bank are refugees, right? And then others are people who've, who've always been living in the West Bank, whose families have always been living in the West Bank. Um, so, in, uh, you know, and they came under Israeli rule, of course, in 1967 with the Israeli occupation of the West Bank in Gaza. Um, so, 48 Palestinians are um, also known as Palestinian citizens of Israel. So they're the Palestinians whose families uh, were not pushed out of what became Israel in 1948. And 67 Palestinians are those Palestinians whose land Israel occupied in 1967. So they all live now under Israeli sovereignty, but with these different political statuses, um, where Palestinians inside Israel have citizenship um, but they are systematically discriminated against by, you know, I think it's over 65 laws. You can look at Adala's website to uh, learn more about those different laws. But um, Palestinians in the occupied territories, um, you know, have no way of participating in Israeli government at all. They don't vote, obviously. Right. Um, and they uh, but even though they've been living under Israeli rule for over 50 years for Palestinians, um, any kind of a sense of having to put a kind of a qualification on what Palestinians are or who Palestinians are um, can feel like a slight injury in some ways, because I think Palestinians like to just think of themselves as Palestinians, right? Palestinian citizens of Israel sometimes, you know, um, are in some ways the, the group of Palestinians that sometimes have the most difficulty with naming. The Israeli state has called them non-Jews or Arab Israelis or Israeli Arabs. Um, and of course, all three of those names deny their their being a part of the Palestinian people at all, right? So you can say also Palestinian citizens of Israel. I think that's a really straightforward legal categorization, right? I think some Palestinian citizens of Israel don't love that terminology because they feel they're not full they're not full citizens. They're not treated and equal citizens. And so even that claim of citizenship is not central to their identity. They don't feel that they get the benefits of that citizenship fully. So they don't even love that. Right. Sometimes so sometimes Palestinians will say Palestinians inside Israel um, as a way of, again, maybe avoiding that term of citizenship. Um, But for me, analytically, I think 48 Palestinians and 67 Palestinians are two great terms to think with. Now, obviously, they do require this kind of explanation because most people who are new to thinking about Palestine won't know what they mean. And the other really, really, really important thing to say is that obviously, you know, 48 Palestinians and 67 Palestinians are only two groups, um, which and those two groups exclude all the Palestinian refugees who live outside of historic Palestine who do not live under Israeli rule. And I'll just say one more thing about the 48 Palestinians and 67 Palestinians. It 
it it indicates not only how these identities are formed through these historical moments, but also how Palestinian identities are formed in relationship to the Israeli state, right? Now, obviously, they're not constituted in relationship to the Israeli state because Palestinian identity predates the Israeli state. And of course, Palestinian identity is so much richer than anything that the Israeli state could impose. But it, it is really interesting to think about how, you know, because Israel dispossessed Palestinians in one way in 1948, and some were allowed to, or some were able to stay inside Israel, that group is formed through that moment of Nakba as Palestinians inside Israel, what becomes Israel, right? And then likewise, you know, the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza forms this other group of Palestinians, which, you know, before 1967 would have been Palestinians under Egyptian control in Gaza or Palestinians under Jordanian control in um, the West Bank. But um, it's the occupation that creates this new category of Palestinians who are living under Israeli occupation. Right, right. Absolutely. I actually, this brings us to the point where I feel it would be great for you to walk us through how you conceptualize fragmentation, because you've been working uh, with this concept. And I guess another way of putting it, perhaps, is who might be included in this picture of fragmentation. And also, just to touch on what you were just saying, could you perhaps... um, you know, speak to Palestinians who are living under Israeli sovereignty and sort of comparing them to to Palestinians who are not or living in areas that aren't under Israeli sovereignty and whether that is a way to distinguish? So I think that question of fragmentation is absolutely crucial to thinking about Palestinian life today. Um, Again, 48 Palestinians, 67 Palestinians, Palestinian refugees beyond historic Palestine. You could think of those as the three maybe biggest and most general groups today. You can also think, of course, of Palestinian refugees outside of Israeli control. And then you can think of Palestinians in a bigger diaspora around the world that might include, you know, Palestinians in the United States and in Europe. Some of us, of course, are refugees and some of us are not, right? But when I think about fragmentation in terms of this work, I'm especially interested in how the actions of the Israeli state not only have created, you know, those three groups, right? You know, by dispossessing 750,000 Palestinians in 1948, you create a refugee population that has now become millions of Palestinians. And um, and now those Palestinians live under the sovereignty of, you know, in, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Jordan. Um, and then, of course, some of them did end up in the occupied territories of the West Bank and Gaza, right? Um, but also how Israeli actions have fragmented Palestinian identities, even within those categories, right? Particularly of Palestinians inside Israel and Palestinians in the occupied territories. So the fragmentation that continues to go on um, because of Israeli laws and policies, um, we could think in terms especially of Palestinians in Jerusalem. Um, Palestinians in Jerusalem have uh, Jerusalem identity cards. They are not citizens of Israel, Um, because for the most part, they have refused um, Israeli citizenship. Israel annexed East Jerusalem. So um, those those areas come under Israeli, you know, um, civil law, uh, you know, under, you know, as far as Israel is concerned. But because East Jerusalem um, was militarily occupied by Israel in the 1967 war, um, the international um, community has rejected that annexation of East Jerusalem. Um, We're not going to talk about Trump's, a move of the embassy uh, 
to East Jerusalem today. But generally, the international community has completely refused and rejected that annexation, right? So you have this group of people in East Jerusalem who in some ways do live under Israeli civil law, but actually are living in Israeli occupied territory also. So they've refused Israeli citizenship, but they also aren't, um, they're quite separated from the rest of the Palestinians uh, living under um, occupation in the West Bank. Um, they're separated by the separation wall, you know, to use mm-hmm. the most sort of blunt and concrete form of uh, separation there, like literally yeah. eight meters of concrete. Literally, concrete, yeah. Right? Or a fence, you know, uh, takes all those forms. Mm-hmm. Um, also, they're separated um, by laws and policies that put extra pressure on Palestinians in Jerusalem to um, leave, to give up their residency rights. And then they are separated also by, you know, they have different services. They're, they are more, much more integrated into Israeli society than Palestinians in the West Bank. You know, they're, they're, they're more like in the rest of the West Bank, I should say. They're more likely to speak Hebrew, for example, right? So thinking about fragmentation starting in 1948 and continuing until the present through various, you know, wars, occupations, um, different national laws that different Palestinians have been living under. Um, so thinking about that fragmentation as an ongoing process, right? And really thinking about fragmentation as another instrument of colonial dispossession. Yeah, which began with the British, right? I mean, the sorts of policies, even that is Israel kind of adopted for its own after 48, um, such as like restrictions on movement, I'm thinking of, or... Um, that's very interesting. I would love to think more about that, but I think that the sort of the 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 process of fragmentation that has taken us up to today, um, I think, has been primarily driven by Israeli policies, though also by the policies of um, Arab states, but primarily by I think by Israel. And then you can think about the fragmentation that has happened over the last twenty years and more, twenty five mm-hmm. years, a little longer between Palestinians in Gaza and Palestinians in the West Bank. Right. So there's been um, movement restrictions between Israeli movement restrictions that have prohibited Palestinians from the West Bank from um, going to Gaza and vice versa. You know, it used to be fairly common for students, uh, you know, young people from Gaza to go study in the universities of the West Bank or for um, family connections and marriages and, and so forth to occur across those lines. And that has been impossible for decades now. So that's another kind of a fragmentation. And then we could think about other fragmentation, other forms of fragmentation that are somewhat less rooted in law, but, um, you know, are related to um, how Israel manages cultural and religious difference to perpetuate um, fragmentation um, within Palestinian communities. If, if the wall is one very, very blunt form of um, separation that creates a certain kind of a fragmentation, another is um, the inability of Palestinian citizens of Israel to marry Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza and to bring them as residents into Israel. Um, so that's another way in which these communities, um, you know, there are so many barriers to people interacting with each other, um, marrying each other, and having any kind of a civil society that brings them together as one group. So from from what you're saying, I mean, what I'm hearing is that there is fragmentation sort of within these different areas that are under Israeli sovereignty and also between the areas that are spliced away from one another. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you think of all the areas that are under Israeli sovereignty, the West Bank, Israel, uh, 1948 Israel, um, and, and Gaza, 
Um, certainly those areas are separate from each other, but then there's fragmentation within them. And I mean, another thing I should mention importantly is that the wall, um, only a small percentage of it actually lies on the green line that separates the West Bank so in fact, the wall um, actually, as well as many other kinds of checkpoints and, um, you know, road restrictions on who can, on where Palestinians can drive, actually fragments Palestinians in the West Bank from each other um, because, it, you know, for example, a trip from one village to the city nearby might have taken 20 minutes before the wall was built and now takes an hour and a half. So that's another somewhat more subtle form of fragmentation. Subtle only because it's not exactly encoded in law, but it certainly structures people's everyday lives. And, you know, where, again, where young people can go to school and um, how trade can happen, how, how people meet up. Absolutely. And, and the way that it shapes then also these different societies. And um, you have another project unfolding on the side about popular politics in Ida refugee camp. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And that is a project that looks at um, sort of how Palestinians, you know, in Ida refugee camp are in some senses struggling to create political power despite three different authorities that are differently undemocratically ruling over them. Um, you know, I'm not posing any kind of equation among them, but there's the Israeli occupation, there's the Palestinian Authority, and there's UNRWA. Um, and in some ways, you know, despite these three authorities that are each trying to govern them in different ways or rule over them in different ways, they're trying to struggle for certain kinds of local authority. And I especially want to focus on issues around media, um, land, water, um, and sort of the right to pro protest and, and expression. So as you're doing ethnographic work in both uh, the occupied West Bank um, Ida refugee camp is located in Bethlehem, for folks who don't know. Um, and then you're also doing ethnography in in 48 or inside uh, Israel. And so I'm curious just the practicalities of that, um, and especially for your book on fragmentation. So you find yourself having to cross the checkpoints from the West Bank into Israel and vice versa, right? And um, in uh, one of your pieces uh, that's called Palestinian Acts of Speaking Together Apart, you speak about uh, two different communities um, that you're looking at, one uh, in Lidda and one in Bethlehem. And you mentioned that when you came back to Bethlehem and spoke to friends about what you saw in Lidda, you, it felt dizzying, kind of describing that. And... I'm just curious if you feel a kind of sense of disorientation kind of passing between those uh, those two sites that, that you're working in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a very dizzying but a very productive sense of disorientation <laughs> that I've been feeling yeah. as a as a field worker and as a as a Palestinian moving between mm -hmm. two spaces. And also, I think especially as a Palestinian American. So I am, you know, not uh you know, my habitus isn't really tuned to either place exactly, right? Um, mm. And so I'm, I'm not sort of a, I'm not fully naturally at home in some senses in either place. And so that makes me particularly sensitive, perhaps, to what it means to be in each place, and especially to what it means to move between them. I think, you know, those of us who travel from, for example, North America, 
um, to Palestinian communities in the in in the Arab world or uh, you know in the Middle East, we we have some mm-hmm. time on that plane to to know what we're getting into in some senses, right? But when you <laughs> right. travel across the Green Line, you're traveling between two you know between different communities that are really different, and they you know your senses of comfort and discomfort shift really quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And you know this is also not to downplay the diversity within each set of communities. So you know right. different Palestinian communities inside Israel in 48 and many different Palestinian communities in the West Bank. And I, you know, by no means want to flatten out those um, really, really big differences. But um, right. you, you do, there are these other things that are happening as you're crossing the green line itself. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it's, then, it's interesting. I Yeah, sorry, go on. And I would just underscore, though, that on the other hand, there are surprising similarities. And so I think it's, it's sort of a, a dizzying sense of what's similar, but also what's different as one crosses the green line. And so you're sort of constantly tuning and retuning your, your personal instruments, if you will, um, on how to, right. um, how to manage yourself in these places. Right. And we'll, um, I'd love to just delve into that um, more a bit later, all the things you've mentioned. But before uh, we do so, I do want to ask you to ground us a little bit just for the audience. So could you perhaps tell us a bit about how you first started uh, working in Ida refugee camp in Bethlehem and sort of what were your first impressions uh, of the camp when you arrived there? Could you kind of paint that scene for the oh, audience? Well, that was about back in 2003. I was doing a book project on um, Palestinian journalists who work with U.S. journalists mm-hmm. during the Second Intifada as reporters, um, photojournalists, fixers, producers, and so forth. Um, and Ida Refugee Camp was a place that I landed um, really um in some senses, coincidentally, mm-hmm. and as a volunteer um, in a youth center that was just starting up there, Laja Center, and um, and so I, I really yeah. just started volunteering and working there until it became a really important part in my of my life. And um, as time progressed, I realized that um, you know I I really did want to write more and attend more to the experiences that I'd been having in in Ida. Mm-hmm. So. You said you were there for the first time in 2003. So the wall was in the process of construction or it was already standing? No, Ida Refugee Camp um, is just on the northern outskirts of Bethlehem. Yeah. Um, and that's on sort of the southern edge of, I mean, it's it's well inside the Green Line. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's, it, you know, but the settlement of Gilo is, uh, I would say, just a few hundred meters away mm-hmm. from, um, from Ida Refugee Camp. So um, the wall... Um, was not at all built when I first arrived in 2003. Okay, well. um, there was part of the wall and there was like um, um, barbed wire down a field where people were saying that the wall would be built, but um, mm-hmm. no, no construction had begun right around there. Okay. So you've also, uh, over the years that you've uh, been working there, you have seen the way, just the impact that the wall has had on the community over time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do think that to me, it's a little bit surprising how relatively quickly one becomes uh, somebody with a, a sort of a long-term stake in a community and also a long-term mm-hmm. sort of in some, a medium-term sense of what has been going on in the community. I mean, I feel like you turn around and all of a sudden you've been, you know, you've been doing this for 10 years or more. Um, so yes, yes. Mm-hmm. 
And you've also, I suppose, seen um, younger generations who were only children when you kind of first met them, and then you've seen them grow up also over time. Yes, that is the joy of working um, with kids. It turns out they grow up much faster than one first anticipates. <laughs> yeah, it, it is amazing to see some of the young people that um, you know I met in those first few years of volunteering at the youth center grow up and you know and do you know incredible things as as young adults. Yeah. Do you remember what books you had with you in your backpack, um, like ethnographies or others, the first time that you did field work in Palestine? Oh, what a wonderful question. Um, well, I probably was trying not to carry too many books, but I think some of the early or some of the ethnographies that brought me to the field and really helped me think about the work that I was doing, work by Ted Swedenberg and Julie Petit and Rima Hamami and Salim Tamari, all of these were really grounding works for me. Um, among others that really helped me to think about the kind of work that I was about mm-hmm. to engage in in terms of the ethnographies of Palestinian society. And then I think at, yeah. you know, I was doing a media project. So a lot of ethnographies of indigenous media in, you know, in Canada, in Australia, in these other settler colonies um, had helped me to think about what it meant to look at media production as a practice and to, um, you know, to think about, to begin to think about settler colonialism and media production, you know, in tandem. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Um, and yeah, I'm just so curious to to hear more um, of your thoughts on fragmentation and what you've been thinking through uh, for your upcoming book. So, as you've mentioned, you're thinking about, uh, I guess, two sets um, of communities inside 48 and in the West Bank. And you're kind of thinking about it comparatively, right? Is it a comparative project, would you say? Oh, that's a great question. I would say I try not to think about it as a comparative project. I think of it more as a connective project, Um, a connective project where in some senses the connections can be very hidden, right? Um, So it's a project that is in some ways about separation, but it's also a project which you've already suggested where my own mobility becomes both an instrument and also a mode of analysis And so I don't think about it as comparing, you know, holding two items sort of apart and separate and then, you know, comparing them to each other. But instead of thinking about how each of them was formed through a history that is very connected and through a contemporary contemporary political structures that are more similar than than we often think about. Yeah. So I think about kind of almost along the lines of a kind of a comparison as relation type of approach to thinking about places together. That's really interesting. Could you say more about that approach? My thinking about comparison as relation comes in part from uh, Shu Mei Shi, who is a comp lit scholar. Um, but for me, what's so interesting about it's not it's not about comparison of two separate units to each other. It's instead looking at how these two units are, again, integrally formed through the same history. And the differences between them emerges because of that history, right? Uh, because of Israeli policies and, and you know, because of the way it carries out settler colonialism in these two places. Um, and the other reason why it's not exactly a project of comparison is, of course, because, and this is something that I always remind myself and I always try to say, we're not talking about two homogenous places, Palestinian, Palestinian communities in Israel and Palestinian communities in the West Bank. And I think any person who's a member of either of those two communities would jump to say so, right? You know, these two Palestinian societies that have, you know, tremendous diversity um, within them, as of course any society does, uh, you know, diversity in hierarchies of class hierarchies, 
um, rural, urban difference, you know, cultural differences, religious differences, um, you know, refugee communities um, in the West Bank, um, as well as, you know, other kinds of urban and rural communities. So those are some of the reasons why I don't think of it as a comparative project, but I do think of it as thinking about these places and putting them in relation by looking at the ways in which political action and expression are different but related in these two places. And the reason why they are different is because of the same thing, which is Israeli settler colonialism. One of my interlocutors, one of my brilliant interlocutors, you know, you're always lucky when somebody in the field says something truly brilliant. Um, It was at an opening where we had brought together young photographers from the West Bank and um, from from Ida Refugee Camp in Bethlehem and from Jaffa. Um, so some were, were Palestinian citizens of Israel and Palestinians, some were Palestinians living under Israeli occupation. And um, one of the women who was leading the project made this incredible remark, which is she said, you know, the thing that separates us is also the thing that brings us together. And that is Israeli occupation, right? She used the word ihtilal and she used the word, you know, Israeli rule over them in both um, Jaffa and in Bethlehem um, is what both brings them together and also what separates them. And I thought that crystallizes exactly what I've been trying to puzzle with. Yeah, it's like a contradiction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's great to think with. I'm curious, uh, sort of over the course of your work on this book, have you noticed uh, continuities and discontinuities of Israeli policies and the popular descent to them um, in looking at these two um, spaces. So maybe I can pull a quote from uh, one of your pieces where you're talking about, um, it's a quote from one one of your interlocutors who talks about Israel killing with the pen versus with the gun. And I'm just curious if you could elaborate a little bit um, sort of how you're thinking around that and how that distinction can be understood or complicated. Yes, thank you so much for that question. So when, again, this was another moment when an interlocutor said something that was so crystallizing of what I had been thinking and why I was doing this work. And my interlocutor was recalling a time when he, and he was a Palestinian um, citizen of Israel, was talking to a Palestinian from the West Bank. And, um, and he said, you think we have it easy, but... We are, um, they, they, they kill us with a pen or with the law. They kill you with the bullet, right? But, but the end result being this, the idea that the end result is the same, right? Um, so for me, there's been a lot of moments when I return back to what, um, what he said. Um, one way to think about it for me is through um, thinking about Nakba commemoration. So Palestinians inside Israel and in the West Bank Many of them in both places are commemorating the Nakba, um, the dispossession of Palestinians in 1948, um, and thinking about the ways in which that Nakba is ongoing today, in which Palestinian dispossession is an ongoing process, whether that's because Palestinians are being pushed out of their homes and their homes are being destroyed in in the Nakab, or um, because Palestinians are losing agricultural land and the threat of annexation in the West Bank. Um, and home demolitions, obviously, in Gaza, and many, many different ways in which this catastrophe of dispossession is ongoing. So many that, you know, <laughs> yeah, you could go on all day, really. Uh, so Nakba commemoration for 48 Palestinians, for Palestinian citizens of Israel, 
uh, often happens on the day of Israeli independence. <laughs> um, and it's a really fascinating and bold strategy that Palestinians inside have undertaken to say that your day of independence is our day of catastrophe, right? Um, and they've done this despite a 2011 Israeli law that prohibits the commemoration of Israel's Independence Day as a day of mourning and sets up um, basically it can pull funding from municipalities that um, mark Israel's Independence Day as a day of mourning. Um, but Palestinians continue to organize this really powerful march of return that um, uh, brings Palestinians out to a village that has been, that was depopulated in 1948. Usually this is a village where in fact, Palestinians continue, like there were internally displaced Palestinians in 1948. So these are people who who were pushed out of their homes, but did not leave the territory that became Israel. So they are Israeli citizens, but they were pushed out of their original lands and lost their lands. They lost wealth um, and they lost their social structures, but they helped, they were able to have Israeli citizenship so that they could go, for example, live in the next town over or something like this, right? Um, so um, these marches of return happen often on Israeli Independence Day as a way of directly confronting um, um, you know, the idea that Israel's independent, you know, Israeli Independence Day is a gift to Palestinians or is something to be celebrated. And um, in the very powerful um, occasions um, in the occupied territories, there are also many, many different ways that Palestinians commemorate Nakba Day. Um, there are sort of official ceremonies. There are the PA organized things. But there are also ways in which Palestinians um, in the West Bank often end up in direct confrontation with um, the Israeli army on those days. So um, it's two different ways uh, of confronting um, Israeli-imposed narratives and Israeli-imposed like sort of physical control over land. But for me, also going back to what this man said about killing with um, with the law or with the bullet is that, in fact, you know, you can't really hold these two as separate from each other, right? Because I think that Palestinians inside Israel are often looking over their shoulder at what's going on in the West Bank, because they know that, you know, they know that 13 demonstrators were killed um, by Israeli police at the very start of the Second Intifada, right? Even though these were unarmed and peaceful protesters, right? Um, and so that they know that that kind of Israeli violence can return to their communities, right? And and likewise, I think that Palestinians in the West Bank look at all those assaults on Gaza, and they know that this, you know, they they, they know that um, you know, Israeli warplanes targeted their cities and their communities during the Second Intifada, and the same, you know, in ways that you know, unfortunately, are all too similar and terrifying um, during the major um, attacks on Gaza over the last twelve years. And so, uh, you know, they they look to those attacks, and they know that similar forms of Israeli violence could return to their communities. So I think that line between what the law does and what the bullet does is never as bright as as it might seem to be. I mean, there are, of course, differences in terms of, uh, for instance, in Bethlehem, the kind of proximity that protesters have to the army um, during a protest versus um, in a city in, in 48, um, there might be police that are watching the protest, um, but there's, you know, there, there's different kind of rhythms of arrest that happen. So there's obviously, like the the tactics that the Israeli that the Israelis use um, differ in each of the contexts. But ultimately, the Israeli state is enabling that violence. 
right? So the distinction between the pen and the gun is is there, but at the same time, there is a kind of a shared struggle. Certainly, certainly. I'm curious also, uh, I want to get back to um, a point that you raise on multiple sovereignties, which I think relates to your project on fragmentation. But before we go there, I'm also really curious about, um, and you write about this as well, that there are some tensions um, that you've come across in your ethnographic work. And you actually mentioned this in another interview that I I was listening to, where you've noticed that there are some West Bank Palestinians who might be suspicious of Palestinian citizens of Israel for perhaps not having done enough to resist. And I'm just curious how this distrust has been shaped historically. If you could, if you could elaborate on that, um, well, Palestinians inside Israel were, you know, you know, historically there was this sort of undercurrent of doubt about, you know, had they become collaborators with the Israeli state, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and I think contemporarily people can think of Palestinians in Israel as benefiting too much from the state of Israel, um, but I have mm-hmm. moved away um, from using that language of suspicion. Um, okay. I think really what I'm interested in is how the presence of these different Palestinian communities is is decentering once one starts to pay attention to them such that no one be, no one is feeling completely at ease with their political strategies or approaches and um, everyone is you know you you can be you, you're kind of set off balance by thinking about the strategies of different um, locations if you will mm-hmm. strategies of uh, resisting and protesting you mean yeah for example yeah I mean so I, I you know I mean to, to, to go back to these protests against the war in Gaza in 2014 yeah uh, a, a protest in the lid for example was this incredible protest that I attended and you know I went I went to several that year um, in Haifa mm-hmm. lid and other places and the chants were just incredible they were they were stunning and poetic and powerful mm-hmm. and they referred to histories of struggle and histories of you know, poetry and, and, you know, Palestinian literary cultures. Right. Um, I was really moved. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, uh, I would go back to Bethlehem where every night there were these, uh, protests where the main goal I think was to, uh, you know, confront the army. Um, there were chants, but basically there was absolutely, you know, there's no way in which any of the soldiers would actually hear the chants because, um, Mm before the people before Palestinian protesters got anywhere close to those Israeli soldiers, you know, the soldiers would be throwing, you know, sound grenades or, or tear gas or other things that kept right. Palestinians away from them. Right. So, um, mm-hmm. the, you know, there was no impetus for poetry in the streets, if you will. Um, instead mm-hmm. there was a motivation for, um, confrontation. Um, and I, I think mm-hmm. both of those approaches have their own power and strength, and they're also really related to the modes of Israeli rule in each place. Um, mm-hmm. You can imagine that in some senses, um, if you think uh, poetry is the most powerful way to protest, then you might look askance at certain kinds of confrontation as uh, counterproductive or overly risky or something like this, right? And if you, on the other mm-hmm. hand, think that confronting the army is the most powerful and brave way of protesting, then you might think, oh, those people are just, just all words and no action. Right. So, um, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, I think that, you know, you could, you could recognize on the other hand, the bravery of the people who are protesting, um, in Bethlehem or the eloquence of those who are protesting in the lid. And in some senses, again, sort of each one puts, puts the other off balance. Mm. 
And also how just it's so telling of how the conditions that are produced by the state um, also produces these kinds of, you call them repertoires or um, different styles or whether it be poetry or it be a stone, right? So, I mean, that's all part of a, a language of resisting, right? Right, very much conditioned, as you, as you say, by the different forms of Israeli rule. So I, I'm trying to think about fragmentation um, you know, in some senses, I think that we need to think about it for all Palestinians without presuming that that means that sort of the ideal is a kind of a whole or a unison um, or that all Palestinians share the same interests or dreams. But, um, but at least to, you know, ask a question about what fragmentation has wrought for all Palestinians. And then I think there's a slightly different question about what it means that all of these people living under Israeli sovereignty have such different, effectively different rights and um and thus, because of sort of the different political structures under which they're living, um, different modes of struggle, right? And 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 because they live with different political statuses, they've actually sort of, you know, they're, they're, they can't participate in the same political structures in terms of parties and elections. And, and so it becomes very difficult for them to formulate their goals together, right? So, I mean, that in some senses is a political science question and an important one that I'm concerned with. But I think there's something a little bit deeper, which is that they also just live in different societies. And so, again, sort of their senses of what, what makes them afraid or what makes them feel bold or what motivates them you know, um, to struggle politically um, are, are different um, in much more subtle ways that, again, I think eth- ethnography is one of the best tools for looking at that. Right. And I think uh, just what you said at the end um, reminds me of a piece that you wrote on popular sovereignty, where you have this uh, wonderful idea that you say at the very end, where you suggest, quote, collective forms of power can emerge and contest state power by exposing its limits, even temporarily. So these kinds of moments um, that might happen even when political structures don't move, so it's it's not that there is a sort of fundamental change to the structure, and yet there are moments when something else might open up or emerge, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm I'm really interested in those moments, and I think those are moments that we can identify, you know, again throughout Palestinian history and throughout across many many different sites of struggle, Palestinian and other around the world, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, thinking about the first Intifada, um, when people, you know, men grow food or run schools, mm-hmm. uh, you know, despite Israeli curfews or managed to even push out Israeli soldiers for small amounts of time. Um, not thinking that that was the ultimate victory, um, uh, but recognizing on the other hand that when one is able to practice that kind of freedom over space, even temporarily, um, it's practice for something in the future. It's a model for what can happen. And, um, and it shows everybody what can happen, not just Palestinians, but also the occupiers. Mm-hmm. And it's also, it's a practice over time, right? I mean, we see some of the practices that were done during the first intifada kind of reemerging over time. Um, so it, it's kind of an ongoing practice. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, a practice that emerges through different kinds of occupation of space, um, you know, happened in the Jordan Valley, also certainly, you know, in refugee camps in mm-hmm. places next to the wall, Um and, you know, I think that, uh, I mean, I was actually at a, a rally um, against white supremacy in this country here, mm. and I was really 
moved um, that the person who started it with a land acknowledgement then went on to count, uh, to comment that, you know, in our gathering, we were, we were at Fennel Hall, um, which is um, a site, you know, a very famous Boston um, tourist site, but also one that's named after um, a, a slaveholder. Uh, and, right. you know, there's, adv- there's advocacy for changing the name of Fennel Hall. And um, right. this leader who's, who is presenting for us that day pointed out that even in our gathering here, we're liberating and opening up that space temporarily. We are giving it a new kind of life and imagining for it a new future, even though, you know, we weren't taking down the statue at that time. And we certainly weren't able to rename it that day. But um, through these gatherings, you know, public space is remade in ways that I think are important. Right, right. And inspiring. I mean, and, and as you said, you know, we see it across the globe. I mean, a few years ago, the Roads Must Fall movement in South Africa, which kind of sparked a lot of these statue removals that we see now in the U.S. five years later. So these kinds of reverberations. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's really important. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's important that we think about these as, you know, embodied practices. Um, you know, I, I learning about how people are, you know, removing state statues in this country, you know, pulling Columbus down and, you know, the statue of Columbus down and dragging that statue several blocks. Yeah. You know, these are, these are embodied actions that take uh, you know, uh, a certain kind of determination, right? Mm. And we can't discount them um, as a certain kind of eloquence right? as well. Right. That's a wonderful way of putting it. Um, this is all bringing me to another, another idea that I would love to explore with you, uh, which you bring up in an article that you wrote where you're speaking about the different communities of protest in Lid and in Bethlehem. And there you explore this notion of a public sphere. So different meanings of public, crowd, audience, and community. And um, I'm curious if you could elaborate on your understanding of the public sphere, and particularly if there's a difference between public and popular in how you understand that. Well, um, that's a wonderful question, and thank you. I um, I think that... Um... Public, the, the concept of the public sphere emerges out of liberal philosophies yeah. where there's an understanding that speaking can be separate and should be separate from action and that, you know, rational deliberation is the mode of proper governance. Mm. Uh, and I think that what we need to start thinking about is both the critically, critically paying attention to the word public and also critically paying attention to the word sphere. So mm. first of all, the idea that um, deliberation happens rationally has been discounted, you know, by so many people at this point yeah. who think about emotion and affect and so forth. Right. Uh, I, and people have also thought about the importance of embodiment in expression and how one can't be taken apart from the other. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important. Um, but also I think we need to think about the role of the state in um Mm-hmm. creating or threatening or, you know, maintaining, um, you know, these kinds of spaces for expression. You know, spaces for expression are never absent um, the state. They're never outside of the state. Um, and so always we should be asking, what is the state doing to cultivate, threaten, shape, limit a particular space of expression, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than imagining that this space of discourse ex- uh, exists separate from the state, right? Um, and certainly, again, I think that thinking about two related groups 
Palestinian citizens of Israel and Palestinians under military occupation who are living under the same state's rule, but with different sets of laws, mm -hmm. primarily, as you mentioned, there are obviously overlaps because of the incorporation of, for, for a number of reasons, but including the incorporation of British colonial law into um, Israeli law. Right. Um, but, but they do live under different sets of laws. Yeah. And so sort of the rules of public engagement are somewhat different, and they're both structured by the state. And mm -hmm. you end up with norms for engagement because of them. Obviously, the Palestinian Authority also plays a role in um, in shaping what can be said and how, and also, of course, of repressing speech. Right. Right. And then I think to turn to the kinds of the critical attention to the word sphere, um, you know, spheres, of course, are imaginary shapes, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. they, they are, um, and, and they are not the spaces of our communities. No, you know, um, mm -hmm. we need to pay attention to sort of the real life, the lived shape of communities, um, whether they're shaped by, city blocks or town lines or school communities or, you know, I, and I guess I'm thinking here, you know, in terms of the U.S. or in terms of polities, uh, you know, and um, and the green line, which, of course, is not an international border yeah. or they are shaped by international borders. Right. But they are, you know, public spheres are, are generally not spherical. Right. And we need to pay attention to the shapes that these spaces of discourse assume. Right. Mm -hmm. And also to when a public is actually trying to challenge and reformulate what the space of that site of discourse will be, right? And in some senses, perhaps that is what I'm most interested in with the project, mm -hmm. you know? Will there be sort of a reformulation of this Palestinian space of discourse and, and of an exchange? And how can it happen? And what are the limitations on it happening? Right, right. I mean, that actually, I'm, I'm curious if, um, if you're suggesting, what are the different ways in which that we can think about the public sphere outside of a state model? And is that where popular sovereignty comes in? And I mean, just more broadly, I'm just curious how your research has pointed to the possibilities that people are working toward or thinking beyond a state-centric model of the future. Well, so first of all, I think you're starting to ask a question around, you know, it's it's not only the state that limits expression, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's that's very, very important to recognize how um, capitalism and corporations and also, you know, um, it's not only the state under which one lives that shapes expression, right? right. Um, but how many different forces uh, are big tech companies, um, algorithms, all of these are shaping, again, the kinds of expression that people can engage in and the spaces of discourse themselves, right? right? So um, it's not only the state that formulates how these public spaces of discourse um, function, right? Mm -hmm. And right now, of course, um, in the occupied territories, there's a campaign against the um, European conditions on right. funding of NGOs, right? right? Which is another kind of a um, struggle for a free space of discourse and action. Mm -hmm. um, so again, it's not only Israel and not only Israel and the Palestinian Authority that shape and limit Palestinian expression. Mm -hmm. It's also you know, these foreign funders, um, certainly also Facebook and yeah. all of these things. So um, th that is one way in which we have to get beyond a state centric model. Or I wouldn't say that. I mean, we can't solely focus on the state. I think the state for Palestinians is at the center of a lot of violence. Yeah. Uh, right. Day. But but I think you're absolutely right that we need to complicate and think in multiple directions around what is limiting expression. And then the other thing that's brought up by your question, I think, is that 
uh, when we think about sovereignty and we think about practices of remaking community, um, mm-hmm. I think because I'm a, I think of myself as an anthropologist of media. You know, I was trained as an anthropologist of media. Right. Um, for various reasons, I'm especially interested in expression, but um, I'm also not interested in abstracting expression from action, right? Mm-hmm. Expression is a kind of action and other kinds of action are modes of expression. And so we need to think about them together, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's where you start to think about models of sovereignty and of taking space and, and bringing it into kind of making a community space um, which I'm also very interested in. Right, right. So, and in terms of making a community space, I mean, uh, and I'm using this term popular sovereignty as a term that you're exploring. So how, have you seen examples of how that operates, let's say in Ida refugee camp within the community? Um, how those forms of, of uh, sovereignty or, or imagining alternative uh I don't even want to say modes of governance, but alternative kind of um, ways of 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 care, caring for one another, or um, organizing. If you could just maybe speak of an example that you've seen. Yeah, I. Again, I think that you know, these are pretty piecemeal, um, fragmentary processes. I think when one works in a place like Ida refugee camp. Um, again, where there are three authorities ruling over or governing the space, you don't find um, sort of utopian models. <laughs> and also when, frankly, obviously the Palestinian national struggle has been so state-centric and um, patriarchal and um, has been focused on a state, right, as a, you know, and has not um, thought enough as a sort of as a movement um, at its higher structures about what the problems of equating a state statehood and liberation are right i think that on the ground people work through those issues but i think that these are like conversations that still need to be had very much right so i i I, for me you know i think about you know kind of the great effort that goes into you know creating for example a playground you know uh with you know holding space and you know in uh, the, the case i'm thinking about is creating a playground on land that had been used as um, sort of a dumping ground that was also the path through which soldiers, Israeli soldiers would often enter the camp um, and that might have been bought up if, if it was going to be bought up by anyone might've been bought up by um, the Waqf. And so it would have become part of the neighboring cemetery, right? So what happens when you, um, instead say that will be community space. It's not going to be the place where everybody in Bethlehem comes to bury their dead. We honor the dead, but we also need the space for our community and for our living children who, you know, make up a large percentage of the population in Ida refugee camp, right? We will reclaim space from the people who dump trash there, right? And we'll reclaim it as much as we can from the soldiers who, um, who do with it what they like, right? So um, I, I'm really interested in thinking about all the different um, ways in which people came together to claim that space um, and who, and also the work that it takes to even maintain that as a nice place to play. Um, so that's something I'll be, I'm excited to work on more in the future. Yeah. Um, so I, I do want to come back to a few things you've said, but I want to just conscious of our time here. Um, 
I want to try to bring us to a discussion of the right of return in particular, because I think this might tie together some of the things we've said. Um, the right of return being one of the core issues that um, one of the core issues of what might be a collective question for Palestinians in terms of achieving liberation. Um, and so I want to briefly bring us back to fragmentation and your work on that by asking, have you come across a conversation about the right of return, specifically the practicalities of it that is being had by communities across the Green Line? I'm wondering how the right of return might interlink communities or conversely open up differences um, between them, because especially when we think of the right of return and um, just the space or the land onto which the refugees would return to is inside 48. Um, so um, Palestinians living inside 48, I mean, there's just a, there's an interesting relationship to to space there as well. So I, I'm wondering if you could speak about that. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I do think it's very, very important to look ethnographically again at what the right of means to many different Palestinian communities. And that, you know, incredible work that, you know, has been done, I think, by ethnographers and anthropologists and others working in many different locations, um, like Diana Allen's work, Ilana Feldman's work, and, and, and many other people's work. But I think for me, uh, thinking across the green line is actually a really productive way of thinking about return. You know, whatever the ethnographic differences are in what people imagine as a positive future for themselves and whatever their concerns about, you know, political leadership and, and their concepts of return might be, uh, you know, I, I, for me, I've been very moved by the work of uh, the people organizing the Misirat al-Auda inside 48 and every year they organize a march of return in a different village um, that has been um, destroyed or depopulated um, and that is a village usually that has a contingent of people who are from that village um, still again who are citizens of Israel um, and uh, Palestinians gather from all around 48 all around Israel to um, 1948 Israel to commemorate the Nakba in that space. Um, and the fact that they, uh, they do that in some senses on their, you know, in remembrance of that particular village and their own relationship to that particular village. And that is very, very moving, but they also do it on behalf of, and in the name of all the refugees who can't come to that Masirat al-Auda, right? Masirat al-Auda because, um, you know, they're, they're in Lebanon or because they're in Nablus or Gaza, right? Um, um, so I think that's um, a really powerful way of connecting visions of return without saying that they're the same vision of return um, or that people are wanting the same thing or have the same claims or dreams, but that, that there can be kind of a speaking with and on behalf of um, in these complex ways. Mm. Despite the fact that the right of return just might mean perhaps something different for refugees living in a camp versus those inside Israel, but that's kind of, you're speaking to something beyond that, right? I mean, I think there's a juridical right of return, right, that is, you know, encoded in 194. Um, and that's really important. And nothing, you know, nothing changes that. But to look at what Palestinians are thinking about what how, how they're conceiving of return and practicing it in these fragment, fragmentary ways 
is um, again a kind of a separate and uh, a separate project um, and one that I think anthropologists can contribute to. So that actually brings me to my final question for you, which is why anthropology in the end? Why anthropology specifically as a way to understand Palestine or as a space from which to fight Israeli settler colonialism? Why anthropology? I think that um, for me, for a number of reasons, I think anthropology is a great way, has been a good way for me to think about a, a kind of a practice of living, of engaging with people, listening to people, expanding who one considers to be um, knowledgeable and who one listens to, because I think that anthropology actually offers us the tool to listen to a wider variety of people than one usually finds in uh, other disciplines, like maybe political science. And that has been absolutely crucial to my own thinking about Palestine and what liberation could mean. I mean, I guess another way of saying that is what does it mean to theorize from Palestine? um, And kind of what does that open as opposed to bringing theories to Palestine? Yeah, I mean, And let me just say another thing about why anthropology. I think, you know, again, like I like the idea of sort of living and experiencing um, a place. And I also like the kind of writing that one can do as an anthropologist, um, which I think can, you know, bring people in, be analytical, be comparative, but also be really grounded in, you know, watching things up close and noticing the small grains of, of political life. And I think that's absolutely crucial in the Palestinian context. And maybe that helps to answer that second question that you just asked around what it means to theorize from Palestine. It means, you know, paying attention to the everyday of politics um, while also attending to how that everyday has been formed through histories of dispossession and struggle. Um, And also how, you know, I think in my opinion, ethnography is not about um, sort of utopian ideas. It's not about making everything look pretty or tying up all the loose ends. It's about nuance. It's about complication. And it's about recognizing that sort of nobody has the very, you know, that people have fragmentary perspectives, again, on, on, on struggle and on liberation. And, um, and the best we can do is to sort of, is to tell these stories and to honor them and to relay perspectives. Um, and it doesn't mean to sort of affirm everything that everybody is saying, but instead to uh, attend to them with, you know, a critical attention uh, of care and connection. Um, and I think that's part of the job of, uh, of me as a Palestinian ethnographer. This was the Voice of Insaniyat, the Society of Palestinian Anthropologists devoted to promoting anthropological inquiry among Palestinians and about Palestine and the rest of the world. Thank you.